Thanks. All right. Well, believe it or not, through pure coincidence, tonight is, in fact, uh, the 101st birthday of Simone de Beauvoir. So it seems to me to be quite fitting that we're doing her this evening. I need to get one of those little flyers there. This, I had a hard time, I do with all of them, but particularly with Simone uh, de Beauvoir. She is a most impressive human being. A very impressive woman, but just unbelievable. And the, just the sketch of her education. So I, I gave a lot on her education, because I wasn't sure what to cut. But if you take a look at what she had done, and notice this is by the time she is 21, when this little sketch wraps up. So she got her um, baccalaureate in mathematics and philosophy in 1925. Um, then she got certificates in French literature and Latin, and then began her study of philosophy. And she studied philosophy at the Sorbonne, which is sort of a third-rate university in France. No, it's one of the finest uh, educational institutions in the world. I mean, the Sorbonne is, is all world all the time. Um, Bavar passes exams for uh, history of philosophy, general philosophy, Greek and logic, and then ethics, sociology, and psychology. She writes uh, the equivalent of a dissertation on Leibniz, um, and then begins studying for the oral exams. Um, and, and she graduates at the age of, she has done all that by the time she's 21. Um, and she takes second place in the oral exams amongst everybody who's taking them. That includes people like Marilu Ponty, Jean Nizan, and Jean-Paul Sartre. So we're talking world-class competition. Um, even though she had never gone to the special school that you go to to prepare for the exam, she just sort of sat in on lectures, you know, and crammed on the weekends. Uh, and, and one reason Sartre did so, he failed the first time he took the exam. He, he took first the second time. But one reason he did so well the second time through is because he was studying with her. <laughs> right? So it, it turns out that that was a re- And he's four or five years older, I forget now, I think five years older. Uh, has been at the special school to prepare for this exam for a while, fails, begins studying with Simone, realizes, ooh, uh, this is good, good stuff here. Um, and um, passes first, barely beating her. And then she beat uh, Paul Mazan and, and Mary Lou Ponty. Also, she went to school with Claude Levy Strauss. So, and everybody in their letters and memoirs, even before she was famous, said, yeah, that she's the real business. I mean, she's the woman. They all recognized immediately this was a powerful mind. And so that's who we're going to be dealing with tonight. One of the greatest minds of, of the 20th century, without doubt. There's no, I don't think there can be any question of that. Male, female, frog, iguana, it doesn't matter. She was first rate. Um, but what I want you to do to prepare for this, I want you to clear your mind. Now, if you know the answer to this little quiz, do not shout it out. It's a little brain teaser that I like to give um, that will hopefully illustrate the kinds of issues that, that she was very much concerned with. So clear your mind. Again, if you know the answer, don't shout it out. Be quiet. So one morning, kid gets up to go fishing with his father. They get up early, pack the truck. They get in the truck. They're driving to the fishing hole. They're crossing a railroad track. When a train comes along, bam, smashes the car, kills the father, horribly maims the child. So the son is put in the ambulance and rushed to the hospital. And they wheel him into the operating theater, and the doctor rushes in and pulls back the the curtain there on him and, and looks down and says, I can't operate on him. He's my son. Who's the doctor? Who's the doctor? His mother. 
How many of you immediately said his mother? Ah! How many of you thought maybe it was his stepfather? Maybe he had two dads. Now see, if I asked you if your father is killed, which of your parents is still alive? Your mother. If I say, can women be doctors? You all say, yes. But somewhere deep in our minds, there is this little problem. It's not conscious. It's not direct. It's just this subtle little sort of kink in our logic. And that when we're presented this problem, that's not really a compl- it's not a hard problem, right, in some way. But, and this is statistical. There's a whole series of these I could give you that's just, just my favorite. Um, it's not an intelligence thing. It's just a, a socialization issue. Men and women tend to do equally well on it, by the way. This has been given to lots of people. Eventually, you'll figure it out, by the way. If I give you a minute... Almost everyone will go, ah, stepfather, two fathers, mother. <laughs> but the notion is, is that that hesitation, that, that lack of knowing, is, is indicative of precisely the kinds of problems that she is working on. And so, so we'll get right back to that. But I wanted to start there just as an introduction. So her early life, she's born into a sort of upper middle class family. Um, that has pretensions towards aristocracy, that which are never achieved. Um, and so there's a very clear plan for Simone, who, who by the way, was, who was a brilliant child. She was clearly brilliant the whole time. Um, and, and the plan is, if you're upper middle class at this time in France, is your daughter gets a dowry, and then she becomes a wife and a mother, and the bigger the dowry, the better, better husband you can sort of purchase for her. <laughs> Um, and therefore the better life that she'll have. Along the way, uh, things sort of go wrong. The family loses some of its money, certainly not poverty in any way, shape, or form. Um, And it becomes clear that she's going to have to make her own way in the world, which is fine for her because she never planned to do the whole dowry marriage children thing anyway. But this way she didn't have to tell her parents. At the same time, her father was very interested in her education. She received some of the finest private and public instruction you could possibly receive at that time. Um, So she was not in any way deprived of an education because she was a girl. She she received just a truly extraordinary education, as is demonstrated by the outcome. So she combined a brilliant mind plus a home that encouraged her to study and learn. Her her father used to edit the classics. I love that. Carefully edit them so she wouldn't get any of the bad parts. Um, I always want to know what those are. I don't have an example. But I want to know what... Like, if you read the Iliad, what do you cut out? All the fighting? You know, Achilles got upset, then he felt better. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, uh, It's... it's, uh, uh, You know, but he gave her these edited versions of the classics very early on. Uh, She went to both, like, a private Catholic school, but also a a public university... Well, sort of a public high school, I guess we call it, um, at the same time. So she had this very mix of, of, of excellent education from many sides and encouragement from the home. And it produced this flowering that we see. And I, there's, if you look on the back, you'll see a list. This is a selected list of, I think, really good works that she did. I mean, she did a lot more. So she's amazingly prolific. Uh, but the two works that really established her and have still maintained her reputation today, I'm kind of jump ahead to, came out uh, in 47. She publishes The Second Sex. 
Not her first work, but a philosophically hugely important work. It's 47. Does it say something else here? It says something else here. That's right. 49. 49 is when she publishes it. Um, the second sex. And you, this can be read as an early um, and amazingly uh, detailed two volumes study of feminism, what we would call today feminism. And I want to go through that carefully because I think what she does, I would argue, is she lays out some arguments we're familiar with and then really works quickly to the problems that we're having today. And I think some of the problems we have today with sort of the position of women comes from the fact that the kind of thinking that Simone did 50 years ago or 60 years ago has really never caught on in this country because we never really had an existentialist movement. And so she, she, it's an amazing work. And she does this, um, and it's pretty easy to follow along in the second sex. She says, first, you have biology. It has nothing to do with us. You get biology. It, it comes, you have no input into it. It's just yours. You wake up one day, you're conscious, and you've got biology. She says, and biology tends to divide us into sexes. But, and this is an important but, while we have biology, we have our bodies, what they mean is not natural. So your biology is natural. Its meaning is social. And that is a crucial distinction. But she says, but we have to deal with the body. We have to deal with the fact that we have bodies. And she says, particularly for women, and she has a great chapter on menstrual cycles. And she says, but women have to deal with this even greater alienation from the body than most people. Uh, than men, because their bodies are sort of so random at times, right? You don't plan this. It's not anything to do with you. It happens sort of in spite of you or to you. And so everybody has the problem of saying, as she points out, I am. Well, what does that mean? It means I stand outside myself, look at myself, and say, I exist. It's a split between the body and the mind. You know, Descartes brings to mind here, right? Because we are aware of ourselves sort of from the outside. Most of the time we like to think, hey, I'm in control of my body. My body is just sort of this machine that does what I want. But every once in a while, and as, as de Beauvoir argues, once a month for women, our bodies sort of take off on their own plan. And we realize that our consciousness and our physicality are not the same thing. Sometimes they're unified, sometimes they're not. But we, we, she wants us to keep that clear. So she says, step one, we have our biology, but both its meaning and our relationship to our biology, mm, very dicey, very complicated, not any sort of simple one-to-one -one correlation or any nice unity. Because a lot of, uh, a lot of, um, of, of sloganarians, like, you know, embrace your body. Uh, and, and Simone de Beauvoir's argument is like, that's nice, except for when your body sort of betrays you. And at the end of her life, she writes a book on getting old, in which she just documents sort of all the betrayals of her body. You know, how it's working against her. She says, this is what happens when you get old. Things start going wrong. Uh, it, you don't control it. It's not your idea. It's, but it is your body, sort of. <clears throat> so she says, okay. Two, um, we have this whole issue of legal rights. Right? And, and for virtually the entire history of women, women have been grossly uh, under-righted, under I guess you would say. They don't have a lot of legal rights. 
right? The, uh, um, you know, they, a lot of times they couldn't own property. If they owned property, they couldn't sell it without their husband's signature. They couldn't buy property without their husband's signature. Or um, if, if they got money, they actually couldn't own a bank account, right? So that all these laws, you can't go out in public without your husband or a male relative, if you have a little bit currently in, in some Islamic societies. Um, these legal impositions on women that hold them back, keep them down. She says, this has to be rectified. You can't have this. This deprives women of the opportunity to be humans, to be human and to be free, which she equates as being the same thing. Uh, but she says, this is not uniquely female. This is another thing she keeps pointing out. Look, if you're deprived of your rights because you're a woman, and you live in a society that has slaves that are males, you are much more like a male slave than you are like if the society also has certain privileges for free women. Right? That she viewed it as an oppression issue as much or more than as a sex issue. She says it, the depriving of rights of women is a similar process, not identical, but similar to the depriving of rights of black people or Muslims or anybody. The deprivation of legal rights is not a, uniquely a sex issue, although it has a huge sexual component to it. See, so that's got to be worked on. And she said, now there's economic opportunity. Many societies give women a lot of legal rights, but basically give them no economic opportunity. You can't hold a job. There's only certain jobs you're allowed to hold. Um, and so, on one hand, it's nice to think that you're free, that you have all these legal rights, but you can't act on them if you can't support yourself. If you are dependent on men for money and access to money and economic opportunity, you're not free. You're still oppressed. So legal rights are insufficient. Economic opportunity is insufficient. You need both of them. And she also argued quite clearly, she said, look, Industrial Revolution has a lot of problems, a lot of oppression, but one thing it did is it liberated women for the first time. Women could work in factories and make money. Hugely liberating. We tend to think as factory work is oppressive. For most of the women in the introduction of the Industrial Revolution, it was liberation itself. I can leave the house. I can go out in the world. I can make money. She says, you've got to be clear on the specifics of these issues. Industrialism, in many instances for women, was the beginning of true economic liberation for women. Because it got them out of the house, which tended to be hugely oppressive, and it gave them opportunity to work in a, in a, in a situation where just their fear, pure physical bulk was not necessary. It, it, the machines liberated us from that. So at this point, I think there's not very much that's controversial Right? This all sounds very good. We need legal rights. We need economic rights. Okay. Ah. But she says, this is not freedom. This is the these are the precursors that are necessary for freedom. This is where existentialism comes in. What is existentialism? At its core, one of the issues it deals with is that to be human is to be free. To be free is to make choices for yourself. The problem is, the main thing, once you have some economic opportunity and once you have some legal rights that preclude you from making choices for yourself are the myths and stories that we tell ourselves, or that society tells us. One of her 
memoirs that she writes about her own life is called sort of the story of the good daughter. Because growing up, she knew what it meant to be a good daughter. As long as she was trying to live out that part in the fairy tale of the good daughter, she was not free. But that's what you were supposed to do. She knew what she was supposed to do. She wanted to be a good daughter. But to do that was not to be herself. She had to rebel against that. She had to free herself from that. So it creates this this problem of, okay, now you have the opportunity to be free, but you have to seize it. You have to make it. Another example she gives is she says, middle-class women in France wanted nothing to do with feminism. Because here's what it meant. Right now I'm a middle-class woman. I don't work. I don't have any expectations outside the home. I have servants to take care of me. I like my life. If you liberate women, I might have to get a job. (laughs) I might have to go out in the world. Basically, I'm afraid to do that because I don't know how to do it. I've never done that before. I'm not equipped to do that. I'm equipped to stay home and entertain and have servants and have a nice house. I can do that. Raise children. Great. Don't try and make me. Don't even give me the opportunity to have to go out in the world and earn my own keep. It was terrifying. So Simone Beauvoir points out that much of the resistance to feminism comes from different classes. Also, the flavor of of women's liberation that you get depends on what class you talk to. So factory working women want equal wages, something that we still struggle with. right? They want fair wages. Look, pay us what the men are going to pay. That's what we want. This was not what middle class feminists were arguing for. Middle class feminists were arguing against pornography. One of the things they loved to argue against. Because they saw it as a threat to the family. And they see their identity as the family. So anything that's a threat to a family is a threat to them. Lower class women in the factories in France, they could have cared less. They don't care about pornography. Have all the pornography you want. Give me equal wages. Give me less working hours. Give me weekends. Give me vacation pay. Give me sick leave. Give me leave if I'm pregnant so I can take care of my kids but I don't lose my job. French factory women struck for that almost 100 years ago. We're sort of still working that out today. (laughs) Right? We're trying to get those family medical leave things sort of dialed in. And so Simone Beauvoir, she, she documents this very closely. It's almost a sociology as she works through. But it's a sociology towards this philosophy. And she says, all right, here we are. I think very much like we are today. It's not perfect. Economic opportunity for for women is not perfect, but it's a hell of a lot better than it's been before. Legal rights for women are not perfect, but they're a hell of a lot better than they've been before. Now what? Ah. Now she says we have to look. This is not freedom. We're not free yet. Now we have to look at the stories we tell ourselves. The models that we use to choose our lives. And we know, right? Look at our society. Women can do anything they want. right? But mostly, men too. Same thing. They get married. Why? Have you ever seen the Disney Channel? Cinderella? This is your plan. You grow up, you're beautiful, you meet Prince Charming, you get married, you have a family, you live happily ever after. That's the plan. And, and 
Women, regardless of education, socioeconomic status, this is what they're trying to do. Not absolutely, but a lot of them. Not for any particular reason, just because that's what you do. Simone de Beauvoir says this is oppression, just as surely as not having legal rights or economic opportunity. Except for in this case, who's the oppressor? You're the oppressor. I'm the oppressor. We oppress ourselves primarily from fear. To try and break through those myths, she says, to break through the stories that our societies tell us and that we tell ourselves about how the future should be, about how I should be. I should be the good daughter. I should be the good wife. I should have the children. Oh, now that is the hard stuff. And this takes us right back to her biography because she's writing this at a time when one of the reasons that both Sartre and de Beauvoir are so important in France, I mean, they wrote lots of things, people read them, they won literary prizes, hey, that's great. But they are, became generally influential outside of intellectual circles because of themselves. One of the things they were famous or notorious for is they worked out a new relationship. They wrote up a contract, excuse me? Um, you, with her religious background, did she see religion as oppressive? Yes and no. We'll talk about it. That's a good question, though. We'll get to religion. That's an excellent question. Both. She saw it as both, depending, um, as with most things. Uh, the, the, um, but in their relationship, which they drew up in a legal contract, I mentioned this before, they said, look, we're going to be our main partners for the rest of our lives. We're not going to get married. We're not going to have kids, and we're going to see other people. We're never going to live together because that's not going to work. So they said, great, we'll do that. And they made it work for their entire lives. It's actually worked for them. They seem to be deeply in love and, and very much helpful to each other for the rest of their days. And they drew this up when they were about 23. She was about 23, so it was about 27-ish. You're on either side. And so coming out of the war, people are looking around for new models of ways to live because a big war like that creates problems. You have Charles de Gaulle, Catholic father figure, who says, hey, let's go back to the way it was in 1872. And that was very attractive for many people because we knew that program. We need to go back. The greatness of France is in the structure historically. The communists are saying, no, we've got to break down all this and rebel this way. And that was very attractive. But Sartre and de Beauvoir modeled in their lives. They said, look, here's how you can live. No material goods. You don't need stuff. Forget about it. Get rid of it. You don't need possessions. They just weigh you down. You don't need to own a home. You can live in hotels, apartments. You don't have to live with anybody. You're a self-sufficient person. You can be your own person. To be alone is not to be lonely. You can be with people but you don't have to necessarily cohabitate with them forever. Why? Why? Why do we have to do this? You don't have to have children, revolutionary for a French woman at this time. You do not need children to have a full life. You can go without that. Have as many sex partners as you want. You choose them. You sleep with them. This is not a betrayal of your other partner. You can hang out in cafes virtually all day long. <laughs> right? It's a way of life. <laughs> Literally, no one had ever really articulated or modeled this before. 
in any grand way. And they were very specific about how they wanted to live. And then they lived that way. Consciously. And thousands, tens of thousands of people in France said, by God, that's the way to do it. That's the way. The closest I could come in the United States was, was maybe Thoreau. And when people started reading Thoreau's writing, they went, hey, we could just move out to the woods. And people did. We've had a series of back-to-the-woods movements. Many of them, most of them, hugely influenced by that guy. Well, looky there. You can just live in the woods and watch squirrels. Right? And so she said, here's the problem, right? We get economic liberation. We get legal liberation. Those are the opportunities to be free, but not freedom itself. And this takes us into her second major philosophical work called um, for, Towards a Philosophy of, of Ambiguity or For a Philosophy of Ambiguity, sometimes translated in Ethics of Ambiguity. But the notion of, okay, you're free now. You, you have the potential to be free. What should you do? How should you live? First, she argues, it's always individual. You have to choose for you. Notice what this does, though. Women as a class, the notion of female solidarity, is gone. Class solidarity, gone. She wants nothing to do with that. She says it's wrong. It misleads you. You are not a woman. You've got to get that out of your head. The reason you think you're a woman is because men for thousands and thousands of years have told you you're a woman. You're the other. There's men and then there's those other things. We'll call them women, but basically we don't want to talk to them. All right. Um, and, and so if you believe that you are a member of that other class, well, you're just believing the story. And it wasn't a story that you wrote. It was a story that men have been writing for thousands of years. So she says, we've got to get rid of this notion that being a woman is an important class. Not that there isn't people who could identify as being women, but that that would matter. She wants to get rid of that as much as she wants to get rid of the notion of being middle class or, or being an arist aristocrat or being anything. People say, oh, go to your roots, you know, discover where you come from. She's like, no, kill your roots. You've got to make it new. You do not want to go backwards. You want to make it new for you because that's the only way you can live. Truly live. Freely live. If you import somebody else's narrative of your life and then act it out, she says, oh, this is great. It's very comforting. She said when she was a student, she went to the library to read Hegel. Um, she found it hugely comforting. She may be the only person who ever found Hegel hugely comforting. But nonetheless... This is what she said. She said, because this system is so totalizing, you have, you have the dialectics of history. It marches forward. It has nothing to do with you. It's the truth. Everything's taken care of. She says, well, how consoling to know that everything's going to be all right. It's sort of a, a secular heaven. God's going to make everything okay. Hegel's going to work everything out for us. She says, but this is the consolation of death. To live is to not know whether or not everything is going to work out. That's what living is. Living is not knowing. And then doing it anyway. 
If you import a narrative, then you know, I know what I'm supposed to do. I know who I'm supposed to be. I know how I'm supposed to act. Very comforting. But for de Beauvoir, she argues, this is the comfort of death. You are not living. You are certainly not free. Well, but she, she was not, because of course she's smarter than everybody all combined in the rest of the world, she did not miss that some of their problems here, particularly ethical problems, hence for the title of her book, Towards a, 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 an Ethics Sort of, of Ambiguity. Because if everybody has to decide for themselves what it is that they need to do, how do you have any notions of ethics or right or wrong? Um, it, it's a problem. And she said there's no great answer for it. She, she says right up front, but we have to address it. A couple of issues that she points out. She says, one... And, and she sides with those philosophers, I should mention. You can sort of group philosophers by people who think... Who, who fundamentally believe that people are generally pretty good and those who think that people are really pretty much generally rotten right in Christianity they call it original sin just being born makes you bad <laughs> right uh, other things say no no socialism tends to think no people are alright they'll be okay left to their own devices people are pretty good De Beauvoir sort of leaned that way so first she didn't think left to their own devices most people would become you know, sort of serial rapists or arsonists or murderers. She said she just doesn't think that's the problem. Not that people don't do bad things but it's just not inherent in humanity to be evil. She says, but okay, but how do you decide? How do you know? And she says, basically only the individual can know. Hence the ambiguity of the situation. I can't know whether you're living the way you should. I can be suspicious. I can think you might be blowing it, but I could be wrong. And you can't know whether I'm living the right way. You can be suspicious, but you can't know for sure. Um, and so she says, we're in this ambiguous situation. Doubly ambiguous. On one hand, I have to act and create myself in a future that I don't know the outcome of. You're going to be constantly terrified. If you're not constantly terrified, you're doing something wrong. Right? Because you have to make these decisions where you don't know the outcome. If you know the outcome, she suspects you've given in to some sort of narrative. Oh, I know what to do now. I know what to do. I've got a plan for next year and a plan for the year after that and a plan for five years from there. You see this with the current economic crisis. Everybody's like, oh, what's going to happen? Something might change. Oh, my God. Right? But if you talk to people and say, is the world great? Oh, God, no. Well, isn't change good? Ugh. Not really. <laughs> right? So the world's both not good and we're afraid of change. And that's the kind of dilemma De Beauvoir says, look, the way out of that dilemma, which she recognizes, is to face the fact that you have to make decisions without knowing the outcome. You've got to take chances. You have to take risks. That was, that's what being free means. When you stop doing that, you've stopped being free. You've chained yourself to an idea, to uh, uh, something that's frozen. Because the world is dynamic and changing, and you've got to change with it. And she also said controversial. Uh, the second section in particular, by the way, is very controversial, but also the philosophy of ambiguity, because she says, look, she lived under Nazi occupation in Paris. She says, you may have to resort to violence. Right? Your freedom and the pursuit of your freedom may require violence. You can't just stand around and let the Nazis occupy your country. 
That's not freedom either. Oppression is not going to just go away. People aren't going to wake up one morning and go, ah, let's stop oppressing people. (laughs) We're tired. No, she says it may take active, violent intervention. And then the question becomes, and and you can read the novels of Sartre and de Beauvoir because they would have meditated on this extensively. When is it okay to use violence? Again, back to it's it's, it's ambiguous. We don't know. It's hard to say. Right? Is it okay to use violence if someone might oppress you? Can you have a preemptive oppressive, anti-oppressive strike? <laughs> right? Do you have to wait till they're really oppressing you pretty seriously? She says it's hard to know. And it's hard to know if you do use violence what the outcome of that violent act will be. It's a huge responsibility. But she says violence is always a failure of freedom. Because it means that there, there is an oppressor that you have to work against. And so she says it's always a bad thing when you have to use violence, but it may be necessary. She would not look away from that. Again, having lived in a country occupied by the Nazis and having done violent acts to try to get them out, she knew that that sometimes is necessary. But when and how do you justify it, it becomes ambiguous again. Another problem she recognized that remains ambiguous is, look, if everybody's trying to be free all the time in their own way, how do you ever have group action? How do we ever coordinate ourselves? And we need to coordinate ourselves, right? Sometimes we need to get together in groups to achieve a goal that no individual can achieve on their own. Excuse me. And she says, all you can try to do is convince people. You can try to convince them to join you freely. That's it. You can never force people to join because that would be a betrayal of the whole notion of whatever you're trying to achieve. It would be contrary to freedom. And she says, this is how you know whether or not you're dealing with a genuinely liberatory movement. If all the members seem really pretty much free, you're probably okay. If they aren't, if they're being forced in some way, bad, very bad. That now we're back in the realm of oppression. And so, where's the trade-off there, right? But it's a, notice that's a very harsh limit, right? We we want to force people to join good movements, right? Well, you have to join, don't you see? She says, no, you can't do that. Even if you're right and all of your goals are just. Still, you have that responsibility to allow somebody else to express their freedom because that's all you're working for. And so it requires you to take on this huge burden on one hand and to fight continuously against the stories of your society on the other hand. Fearless. Um, I, I was looking at some pictures of her that, that Vicky gave me, and, and you can see it in her face. Yeah, if, if, if I were behind Simone de Beauvoir, I'd be much less afraid. Because, man, she's got that, she's just fearless, she's powerful, you can see it in her. She can look at things and go, I don't care, I'm doing it anyway. Right? But, but that's what it requires. Because of all the narratives we tell ourselves, oh, if we're going to get by, we have to have money. I have to have a retirement account. I have to have health care. I have to have a good job. You know, I have to be educated. All these things that we have to have or else what? Why? 
Why do we need all this stuff? Do we really? What's what happens if we don't? Is it that terrible? Oh yes. Oh yes. We know it is. Absolutely, that's right. Right? People get married and it doesn't work out, so they get divorced, and you go, okay. And then they get married again and it doesn't work out, so they get divorced. And they get married again. What the hell is going on? Why? Well, because that's our that's one of our huge narratives. Look, you can be single and looking for a partner. You can have a partner and be engaged, working towards marriage. You can be married and you can be freshly divorced. We we have this art. We love this art. We all know this story. If you're in any place in that story, everybody loves you. You know how to talk about yourself. People know how to understand you. If you ever break out of that arc, people do not are not happy. <laughs> right? You cannot say, oh, are you dating? No. Oh, what's wrong? Depressed? <laughs> you say, no, I'm just happy on my own. Oh, no. Oh, no. That can't be right. Married? Yes, I have three wives. What? <laughs> See, you can have three wives if you have them one at a time. You can have three husbands if you have them one at a time. But if you say, oh, yeah, I've got three husbands all at the same time, that's wrong. <laughs> Why? Because that's not our story. That's not how we do things. You cannot be happy unless you're in one of those places. We know that. And if you try to explain that, if you say, married? Oh, yeah. How's it going? Great. Where's your wife? Oh, she lives in, I don't know, India. What? How could she live in India? Well, I don't know. She was, visits her family. Oh, when's she coming back? Nine months. Well, that's terrible. Why? Why can't my wife be in India for nine months? Why do we have to live together in the same room? If we're not together in the same room, something's wrong. Right? We know this. We know this. If you're married, oh, how many kids do you have? None. Oh, when are you having some? Oh, we're thinking, we're thinking of not having any. Why? You could adopt. <laughs> One of my friends, she's been married for years and years and years, and people, she got so tired of this question that she just started telling people, oh, I'm sterile. <laughs> she said, that cuts that conversation right off. <laughs> people do not follow up on that. Oh, you had any kids? Sterile. <laughs> you know, because that's not the story. But de Beauvoir said, she's absolutely clear on this. She has chapter after chapter about all these stories and how we need to break them. That look, until we break out of these stories for ourselves, and we can only do this individually, you know, you're not free. You're, you're really not free. All you, all you can change stories, but is it yours? Is living like Simone de Beauvoir and Sartre you? Maybe, maybe not. Getting married, having six kids, and living in the country, you. Maybe it is. Maybe this is really you're like, look, I got six kids, I live in the country, life is wonderful. Great. Everyone's like, I have students that bring this up in class, um, and I'll say, you know, why isn't it okay for women to just want to have kids anymore? And there's like one or two girls in every class, will, yeah, why is that? I just want to have like six kids and take care of them. Is that bad? Yes, we know that's bad. Because you need an education, you need a job, you need to be independent. They're like, I don't want to be independent. I don't want a job. I want six kids. <laughs> but see, that's not the narrative anymore. 
In the 1880s, you're right there, baby. You're right where you want to be. You've got the narrative right. But today, that's not the narrative anymore. And so he struggled with this. And, and de Beauvoir struggled with this personally. Again, she set up this, this sort of very different and at the time considered crazy life. She was also an early proponent of lesbianism. Uh, notice it's one thing to sleep with women. It's another one to be a proponent of it. <laughs> it's another thing to be a proponent of it while you're in a long-term relationship with a man, and it's 1952. Um, and so the second sex was banned and, and ridiculed and pulled off shelves and very controversial because she had sections where she talked about the, the benefits, the advantages, the psychological nature of lesbianism. She says, look, this is another way to model a life for a woman. Well, this is no good. right? We know that can't be right. Um, because a woman cannot be happy that way. Right? Because she needs a man. Let's face it. Because women always seem so much happier when they're with men. I don't know. Um, it doesn't seem right. But, but she said, let's look at this seriously, right? Well, what are the advantages and the disadvantages of this? How does this work out? And she was, if not the first, one of the very first to really sit down and lay that out and talk about it. Um, and, but again, hugely controversial because very early. Then fast forward today, hey, you want to have a lesbian relationship? Great. You want to be gay? Great. Now, now gay marriage is an issue. Simone Beauvoir probably killed herself if she knew that. <laughs> so we work all this time so you can be liberated, so you can get married. What the hell is that? <laughs> it's like the most oppressive institution ever created by the patriarchy, marriage. And you're fighting, marching on the streets for the right to have alimony payments. I don't know. What the hell? She would be very suspicious, but that's the power of the narrative. Oh, you're liberated, it's great. Two men can live together, have a life, wonderful, good for you. No, we want to get married because we want to live the narrative. Legal rights are not enough. She would say, legal rights, absolutely, you have to have those. Otherwise, it's just not fair. You're oppressed. But no, they don't want legal, and they want legal rights, right? But that's not enough. No, no, we've got to have the church, we've got to have the wedding, because that's a narrative. When we don't live the narrative, we're not happy, because then we're doing something different. We want to be a little different, but not very much different. <laughs> we don't want to be really different, because that's no fun, that's scary. Then we don't know what to do. Not only do we want to get married, we want to adopt children. Which, I guess, I wish, I wish you were alive to see this, because, you know, she never got married, and she never had children. So it's great that you're free to have that opportunity, but is this, is this your narrative that you're living, or are you importing the larger cultural narrative? Because you feel alienated, because you're a lesbian, or you're homosexual, or you're black, or whatever it is, until you say, well, I'm a little bit of the other, so now I'll import some major narrative. Right? So, so I'll, I'll become as mainstream in every other way as possible to sort of offset this. And she says, ah, oh, as long as you do that, yeah, not that free. You might feel better, but really it's the consolation, again, of death. Because existentialism requires you, imposes upon you the burden, and, and they see this as a burden, of making yourself free. And in making yourself free, you free other people. That was the idea. You can't free other people when you're not free yourself. What you do is you inadvertently oppress them. You don't know this. 
If you're living in some terrible marriage and you have some kids and you're raising them and you're like, well, the marriage is what you do. And you say, well, kids, you got to get married. Because me and your bitch of a mother here, we got married. If we have to do it, you have to do it. Right? This is not freeing your kids. This is your failure to be free being passed on. This is, this, is, this is oppressive. And this is how the last and most insidious form of oppression gets passed on. But again, as she talks about in the philosophy of ambiguity, the only escape from that is not a very good escape at all. It's not a happy escape. It's the terror of trying to make yourself free, of asking yourself, and this is where she moves to very introspective psychological questions. How do we know what we actually want? How do we know what we actually want to be projecting into the future? How do we decide how it is that I should live? Maybe I want bad things. Right? If I have a deep burning desire for a Hummer because I think they're huge and big and great, is that good? I might really want one, but environmentally, it's suspicious. Right? So... Even the things I want, I need to be suspicious of because I have to ask myself, well, why would I want that? Or wouldn't you say the reason I don't want is because I'm buying into, I'm buying into the environmental story? And or I'm am I just getting snookered by the greenies? Yeah. <laughs> what the hell? Have a big old damn Hummer if you want one. Be free. Love life. Yeah, you don't know because you can't believe anybody else's thing. Or your own. <laughs> you see the problem she puts us into? And she never flinches. She never gives you a moment of consolation. She says, look, all you can do is try. And the trying is what makes you human. You become human only when you're trying to be free. You do not want to be a woman. You do not want to be a man. You want to be a human. You don't want to be black or white or Islamic or Christian or conservative or liberal. You want to be a human. You should want to be a human, she argues. Everything else is bad faith. It's living a kind of lie. Some sort of consolation of death. Um, now, these two works, I mean, they're really central to her. And her application of these is impressive. I cannot tell you how impressive I find these. Um, Early on in the period of communist China, so we're talking, I think, 1960, I'm sure exact date, she goes to China. No one had been there yet because it closed down during the revolution. So very few people in it. So they open up communist China in 1960 to have visitors because they say, you know, come and look, see what we're doing. And so she goes and she writes this book called, maybe it's on here, um, The Long March. There it is, 1957. So she went in 1956. Because that's the way they were. You go in 1956, you have a 700-page book, re- book ready in 1957. <laughs> God, you hate these people. You know, wow. Uh, but, and at the last, the, the, the first <coughs> 600 pages is sort of her wandering around and everything she sees, and it's very interesting, but it's sort of like a, a, a very long intellectual travelogue. But the last 100 pages is like, okay, well, what does this mean? What does this mean for China as we look to the future? And she sees it all. She sees modern China so clearly it's terrifying. Because almost nobody else did at the time. Like, oh, the revolution's going to fail. There's going to be a counter-revolution. They're just going to fade back into their old Chinese pattern. She said, no, look, people love this stuff. 
If you're a peasant working in the fields and someone says, you're going to have two shirts next year, not one, you think that's great. She talked to one guy and she says, how do you feel under communism? He says, I feel free. And he said, why? And he says, I like to play soccer or football. And he says, well, you could play soccer before. And he says, yeah, but I only had one pair of shoes and I wore them out. And I could never get another one. And now I have another pair of shoes. And so I'm free to play soccer. And she says, so when people are moving, eat a little bit every year, a little bit every year, they're happy. And they'll, they'll work. They'll do amazing things. And, and I have to remember when the Chinese Revolution happened, Joe Lai, who was sort of the number two guy, um, said there were, I think, 12 electrical engineers in the country. 500 million people, 12 electrical engineers. 50 years later, look at China. They're using damn near as much electricity as we are. From 12 electrical engineers. 50 years, that's no time. I mean, that's a blink. Why? Because almost everybody has bought in. They love the system. They believe in it. And she said, as long as that's the case, and the leaders keep leading the way they are, and she said the key to understanding what the Chinese leaders is doing is that they only do the things that people want them to. So they go out in the countryside, they go in the cities, and they say, what do you want us to do? And they, and they find out, and then they announce, the party's platform is this. And people go, oh, hey, we support that. And then they do it, because everybody wants it to happen. And she said, if they ever stop doing that, there's going to be a revolution, and millions of people are going to die. That was three years before the Cultural Revolution in which million people were killed because there was a division amongst the party bosses and they tried to force the people to do something they absolutely did not want to do. After that, they went right back to what they were doing before. People in the Tiananmen Square uprising, same thing. The people said, we want more, basically, financial freedom. Tiananmen uprising happens. They crush it. This is very upsetting. Next thing they do, massive economic reforms. People love it. Uh, one, one of my friends who was in China at the time of the Tiananmen massacre um, said, if you tried to hold the Tiananmen uprising today, all the people would leave their homes and walk to the square and beat the hell out of the students. Because they're like, look, stop screwing up the system. We're happy with the way things are. The government is going the direction we want them to go. And she said, you cannot understand what's going on in China unless you understand that the government is actually trying to do what the people want as best they can. Not perfectly. There are mistakes. Errors are going to be made. But they really are trying to do what people want. And she says, as long as they do that, they'll be successful. The second they don't, you're going to have uprising, revolution, and trouble. And that's exactly what's happened several times between when she wrote that and today. But she said what she saw for the future of China is the slow liberation of increasing numbers of people being raised out of poverty. And she said if that ever stops, and this will be interesting with the economic downturn, if people ever stop being raised out of poverty, the whole thing is going to collapse. Because that's the promise. That's what they're saying. That's what they're trying to do. And people believe. If they stop believing, oh, big trouble. Um... The other thing, not, not only 
was able to predict and work very well in, in strange realms like China. Not a lot of people went to China at the time and were able to write this out. I recommend reading it, if nothing else, the last 50 or 100 pages of that book for that reason. Um, but, but it gave her this powerful insight into people. And she basically argued, look, given the opportunity to be free, given something to strive for, people will try and throw off oppression stage by stage. So she also became not a big believer in revolutions. She thought revolutions were sort of fantasies. Because the fantasy is that, oh, tomorrow we're going to get rid of all the economic oppression, we're going to get rid of all the legal oppression, and then everybody's going to be great. She says, no, and then you're going to be stuck with a lot of people who are to have the same problems that people always have. It also made her suspicious of what we have today, which I say is the, is the model male. What we've done is we've liberated everybody and said, you should be just like a middle-class man. Women should have the same rights as men. Why? Who said men had great rights? Why shouldn't you have better rights than men? Why shouldn't you have different rights? Why shouldn't women help everybody get better rights than they have now? Why? Because men are the ideal and women are the other. Same thing with, with the movement for racial justice. Black people should have the same rights as white people. Why? Who said white people's rights were the good rights? Why shouldn't they have better rights, different rights, new rights? Why shouldn't black people be working for rights that liberate everybody? Ah, because we still have the norm. You see yourself as the other. And, and this was her, her, one of her central points. Until you stop seeing yourself as the other and something else as the norm, you can't free yourself. But the only way to break yourself out of that cycle, no matter who you are, is to pursue your own course. And that, wow, I mean, a major outpouring of, of, of difficulty. Final note. Um, in pursuit of this, again, I mentioned she was unflinching. Two of the last books, well, three of the last books that she wrote, one on the death of her mother, one on the death of Sartre, and one on her own aging body, which I mentioned before, her own encounter with age. Age cometh, or in the force of age. The coming of age. Yeah, I think age cometh is a better translation, but the coming of age. Um, she looks at this and she says, look, our bodies are going to fail. Your body's going to fail. My body fails. People die. A brutal <coughs> analysis of the death of her mother. Clinical. Like a surgeon sitting there going, oh, and then this failed, and then this failed, and then this failed. It's like the painting uh, uh, Monet did of his wife dying. People have seen this? It's Monet, right? I think that's Monet, yeah. yeah he, he, he's watching her die of cancer in excruciating pain. And she finally lapses basically into a coma. And he said the light on her was so perfect, he just had to paint her. And so without flinching, he paints the dying wife, the dead wife. By the time he's finished, she's actually dead. I believe it was Monet. And I think that's right. I think that's Monet. I'm pretty sure. 90% sure. Richard, yep. Richard Avedon photographed his dying father. Richard Avedon, right? This notion of facing the truth as you can see it. Her mother's failing is not just her mother's failing, it's hers. It's ours. Right? You don't look away from that because that's where freedom is. Freedom is not 
happiness and joy and love and light, that's good too. But freedom is being able to face and accept and acknowledge and be okay with the human condition. Don't back away from it. Don't look away. Don't accept some narrative of, oh yes, well it's a peaceful rest. No, it's not a peaceful rest. Oh, your golden years will be so wonderful. Well, maybe they'll be hell. <laughs> right? There's no guarantee our golden years will be wonderful. Could be crappy. Could be anything. Right? And, and that, that unwillingness to turn away, that fearlessness, that's the drive that she calls on us to have. She says, look, if you're going to free yourself, if you're going to become truly human and hence free other people, you need that fearlessness. You need the courage to try and be yourself and to face the world without flinching. And I would say she did a pretty damn admirable job in her life. So Simone de Beauvoir, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs>